Welcome to Culture Matters, a podcast that explores the intersection of faith and culture. I'm Adam Griffin, and I'm usually here with Adam Hawkins and Elizabeth Woodson, but tonight Adam Hawkins is under the weather. And since we already have this scheduled and it worked out so well, we have our special guest with us, friend of the show, Mr. Timothy Thomas. And we're going to have a conversation about some difficult things in this episode tonight about the murder of Ahmaud Arbery and discuss the implications as it relates to racial injustice in our country. So this is a heavy episode, an important episode, and I'm looking forward to hearing from Timothy and Elizabeth and getting to be part of this discussion. All right, before we get started, let's, Timothy, for those who may not have listened to the episodes you've been on, you may be a stranger to many of our listeners. Timothy, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so I live, uh, my name is Timothy Thomas, um, married to Angela uh, Thomas, who is just an incredible person uh, overall. So uh, she's just as much part of me as I am of her. Uh, But I live in Fort Worth, uh, Texas. I'm a full-time teacher, full-time football coach, head girls track coach uh, at a 6A high school uh, in Keller, Texas. Um, I'm also a part-time writer for Christ and Pop Culture. Um, an online magazine, and also I've written for uh, The Witness, a Black Christian collective uh, before as well, uh, among some other outlets as well, like Rapzilla and, and things of that nature. Um, but overall, really, I'm, I'm really just an, an old 30-year-old, old soul guy. I've been like that pretty much my whole life, so nothing too extraordinary about me, I don't think. Well, I think you're selling yourself short. If you guys haven't read Timothy at Christ and Pop Culture, he writes on a regular basis, and he is an excellent writer and thinker. And I'm so glad that he's become a friend of our show and a, and a friend of mine. I'm glad to have him on with us. And of course, Elizabeth Woodson is with us as usual. And Elizabeth, how are you today? Are you doing okay? I know this has been a heavy couple of weeks. You doing all right? I think I'm doing okay. Um, it has been. We're going to talk about why that this past week has been a little bit harder for me. Um, so I would say, okay, not my usual bad. Okay, can we start with that? You can start personally if you want, but can you just maybe catch up? Because I here's one of the things. This weekend I was hanging out with some friends, and uh, of the five of us that were together, socially distanced, two people had not heard of what had happened with the mod Arbery. And I know part of that is because of the nature of COVID, some people have turned off the news and they're like, I'm done watching this. And so part of it, they were just unaware working on their computers and didn't know, but can you catch us up? Maybe if you want to start personally, you can as well, Elizabeth, but what's been going on nationally and locally for you? You have the instance of a young man, uh, Maude Arbery, who um, he's in Brunswick, Georgia, and he was jogging down the street and two in a neighborhood in his community and two men, Gregory and Travis Michael, um, mistook him for a burglary suspect. And so they got in their pickup truck, um, grabbed their guns and pursued him. And um, it resulted in an altercation in which he was shot and he lost his life. Um, And so you have a situation of someone who is not guilty of a crime, who is simply jogging down the street, um, who loses his life in what many would believe, what I would believe is a racially motivated um, situation. And so Ahmaud Arbery is African-American and just really a senseless killing um, that is indicative of things that are in our our country's history. So, you know, I think when we talk about these things that happen in the media, whether it's really with the police or just 
racial issues that happen between citizens. It's something that has happened in our country for too long. And so just my weekend, I spent a lot of time just grieving that and what it means for me to be an African-American woman in this country. I work in a predominantly white space. And so what are those dynamics for me? And just this, I have two young nephews, you know, I have cousins who could have easily been Ahmad. And so what does it mean to live in that reality where your life might be taken by someone um, because of what they think about you based upon the color of your skin? Um, and for some that might seem, um, I believe in America. Can, can you speak to that a little bit? Because I think one of the other things is, I don't want to assume, you know, I don't know what percent of our, of our listeners are African-American. And I don't know what percent of them are going, uh, amen, I empathize, and what part of them need to really understand what it is like to be African-American in the midst of these news stories that happen recurring over and over and over again. And in light of our country's history, can you just speak to what is the, what is the, and I'll say this because I've had some friends who are African-American who have helped me so much perspective-wise, helping me just understand the difference between what I hear and experience when something like this happens versus what they hear and experience when this happens. And so for those who, who, who want to empathize but maybe haven't been where you are or haven't lived the life you have, what, what could you share to help them understand? What is a story like this? How does it hit you? I think African-Americans tend to be, we're not a monolithic people. And so everyone's story is not the same. Um, but a generalization, which may or may not fit our listeners who might be African-American, is that we're communal people and so have a communal identity. So it's not that, oh, if that happened to Ahmad, that could never happen to me. Um, it very much is that happened to him and it might happen to me because of the realities of what it means to be African-American in this country. And so when people see me, what stereotypes maybe do they attribute to me? Um, I think with these men, in Georgia, they thought that he was a criminal for no other reason that he might have fit a description. Um, and that's just historical. So when you think about how have African-Americans been treated in this country, how do we view them? Um, and many times those stereotypes are not positive, but they're negative and just uh, a fear um, and maybe even a terror that as a people have had to endure and navigate um, in, in some really significant ways. And so I think it very much is you see yourself in the experience. I will say I see myself in the experience um, and recognize that it's really close to home and the reality of it happening just to me or someone that I know is high. Um, I think Sandra Bland made that reality true for a lot of people that it wasn't, um, it happens to African-American men, Latino men, Latino women, um, but just that it's not a formula for who these things happen to is what we've seen. But I don't know, Timothy, you want to jump in and kind of share what you're thinking? Yeah. Um, so I think about, you know, the fact that the reason why we know what happened to Ahmad uh, was because of the video. Mm -hmm. And the reason why we even know of the video is because the man who posted the video was also pursuing Ahmad. And in his view, he wanted to shed light on justifying why Ahmad was killed. And even still, and there's a Facebook group out there, I'm sure you've probably, probably seen it, but they're described as God-fearing men, 
Um, and so the fact that, um, you know, it's still perceived by some people that they were justified in doing what they were doing. Um, and I think I even, I'm pretty sure I have some coworkers um, who would probably say the same thing. I haven't had any conversations with them about that, but um, because I also think back to other instances when there wasn't video. Um, and <clears throat> this is just another classic uh, case of, to me, what it's, what it's like to uh, be uh, African-American in this country. Um, and so Ahmad was, you know, they tried to release video of him walking through um, an unfinished home, a, a home that was being built. Um, and he was in there for about three minutes or so and then left as if that was justification um, for him being somewhere where he wasn't supposed to be. I'm, you know, me and my wife, we just finished uh, building our home and we're getting ready to move in. And I think about walking through unfinished homes uh, at the time, just to try to get ideas, just to try to get perspective on what I might want my home to look like, to have the freedom to be able to build my home and live where I want to in a country where I'm supposed to be free. Yet just the color of my skin in some people's eyes is justification for assuming that I'm doing something that I'm not supposed to be doing. Um, and so I, I say all of that to say um, that there is still embedded in not just our American system, um, but I also think in our church system, because again, these two men were identified as God-fearing men who think that they were doing something right. They think, they think that they were doing something good. Um, and there's still something wrong that I feel like we need to deal with and that is, that is interwoven with our culture and also with our politics, with our laws, with our religion. Um, and it's just interwoven from the inception of the United States of America. Um, but I don't know, that's, that's just a few thoughts in, in some of this. And it's, it's still kind of heavy on me. And I, I've really tried not to think too heavily on it because uh, Elizabeth, I'm, I'm sure you probably feel similar to me. I'm just tired of being tired. You know, I'm just tired of being tired at this point. And so I'm like, I, I haven't given it too much energy besides the, um, you know, the 2.23 miles, I think it was, that I ran, I ran a little bit more than that, but to honor Amaya Arbery's death on a Saturday. Um, and but that's about all the energy that I can give it because it, it, it just, it, it wears me out. It wears me out. Well, I, I honestly, I can't imagine. I, I can try to sympathize and I can try to empathize, but I know that my, my understanding and my reaction uh, is not going to be the same. And that's part of what I think I, I want to communicate to is like, Oh, I, I don't want to be like, Oh, I get it. Oh, I'm, I totally understand. Or, um, that I'm totally, you know, woke or anything to the degree of actually understanding what it's like. And, and I also know the, the exhaustion I've heard from friends that comes from asking the same questions over and over again and seeing the same experiences repeated over and over again. And 
Timothy, you brought up some really, really fascinating points too, just about, man, in some ways, what happened with Ahmaud Arbery is almost like a microcosm of what has happened over and over again in the fact that uh, when there's no video play, nothing happens to these uh, these two white men involved for, I think it's 11 weeks, it's almost three months, where there is no action taken against them. So if there is no video, and it's just a microcosm, what I think of is like how if, if those who live and those who rule write the history, if those set the story of like, this is how it worked out and this is how it happened, then how those who have been disempowered and disenfranchised don't get represented, don't get to hear their story. In an Ahmad's case, we didn't hear his story. Literally, our nation didn't hear his story. The, it sounds like the police didn't hear the full story until the video is out there and it's pervasive. It reminds me of like an Emmett Till type moment of saying, we're going to leave the casket open so you can witness what's been happening pervasively. And then maybe people will start to wake up to what's going on. And you're right. There are people out there that in every circumstance I hear like this, they'll say things that can sometimes be insensitive. Like, well, let's wait till we get all the facts. Let's hear the guy's background. Let's, let's see what all the other video, let's see what was really going on here. And I can understand that to a degree, but at some point you have to agree. There is no circumstance in which one citizen should be able to stop another citizen with a shotgun, shoot that person, and then declare that they were defending themselves. Like if anybody should be justified in self-defense in that moment, isn't it the man who was unarmed who was maybe, yeah, maybe he was throwing punches at a guy with a shotgun. The guy came at him with a shotgun. Who's defending himself in that moment? And those kind of things, and I know I'm getting a little fired up already, and I want to preserve that a little bit, but it, it a little bit uh, drives me nuts to think about and to hear from people the runaround of, well, yeah, but, well, yeah, but, instead of just the, the grief, the empathy, and maybe the humility to say, maybe I just don't, I just don't get it. Uh, because when people are describing the way these racial incidents, incidences fire them up, I don't feel that way. And even that is indicative of just how separate our country is on racial issues. If for one group of people it can fire them up and for other people, they say, we just need to get over it. Again, it's revelatory. Look at how differently we're thinking about the same events happening again and again. And then, uh, and that kind of division is something that we've dealt with for a long time. And you're right, it can be exhausting. And I, I don't even have the, uh, the personal reaction and experience that y'all are having to deal with. Um, let me ask w- one more question before we uh, kind of take a, a short break here and talk a little bit more about uh, the, how the church should respond. But um, and, uh, the word hate crime gets thrown, thrown around a lot. And people will say, well, this wasn't a hate crime. But you, you guys have already expressed that you see, you see the, the influence that prejudice has had on this circumstance. The, the fact that it's not, just, it's not just because the guys were white and Ahmad was black that this happened, that it happened to be a national story. It doesn't happen probably if Ahmad isn't black and these men are white. And what does that tell you about the, the state of our nation right now? What do you guys see or what do you guys experience or what do you guys think about the state of our nation when it comes to just, maybe it, the stereotypes is too light a word, but um, assumptions about other people based on race. Where do we still see it? Where is it still happening? Other people live, believe that, um, don't believe we are products of history. And so that what you believe and how you function and, and the different worldview you have comes from your environment. And so we don't understand the water we live in. 
And so we have been trained over years from the inception of our country to think about different people in certain ways. And so you have to think about the reason why these men thought they had the right to stop him with like why that, why they thought they had the right to tell this random man to listen to them armed and feel justified in that. Um, and some people, you know, saying, hey, he just didn't stop and listen to simple command. And we'll see assumption that your commands are authoritative. Um, and that's historical um, in, in a way that um, white people have interacted with black people throughout history. Um, and so people need to understand that a lot of times it's, I'm not a bad person. That's people's response. I'm a good person. I love people. And it's not about being bad or good. It's about how well do you see the water you live in? I talk about it when I talk about discipleship with my students. We are being formed. Discipleship is not neutral. And so how have you been formed by your environment? And are you either pushing against it or are you leaning into it? And a lot of times we just want to ignore it um, because they think they're exempt from that because we have a very individualistic society. We have inherited something and we need to understand. It's just a fact. You cannot get away from it. And so what have you inherited that's dark and evil? And how do you push against it? Because if you're not pushing against it, you're living into it. Yeah. And so I think that uh, <clears throat> is, is just like what you say, Elizabeth, that I think we've, we individualize everything. Um, and we don't believe that, um, you know, racial injustice can be systematized and, and it is. Um, and I think after the break, I'll probably talk a little bit more about, you know, how we can see how, how things in our laws and our policies and things like that are interconnected and how it affects our culture and how we see other people. Um, but but you're exactly right. I, I probably can't add anything else uh, too, too great to what you said. That's good. Well, let me uh, let's come back to that and the systemic aspects of what are happening and then how do we. I don't want to have a hopeless episode. I want to talk a little bit about how we would advise and minister to people in the midst of this. But uh, real quick, let me just talk for a second about one of our sponsors. telling you one of the biggest delights of having this as a sponsor is that where would we turn for answers right now? It's to the Word of God. And so uh, fortunately, one of our sponsors is the Dwell Bible app, which is a way to uh, soak in and sit under the Word of God, maybe in a way that you haven't before because it's an audio Bible app and it's it's extremely customizable. It's ways of changing levels of how loud background music is or which voice you're listening to or which translation and it's just it accommodates uh, your listening experience to a way that you prefer so that we can create an environment in which you can sit under the word of god while you're doing other things yes listening uh, while you're doing the dishes or while you're working out or while you're driving but also just maybe just sitting for a while and letting somebody read the Bible to you or as you go to sleep at night. So I'm so glad Dwell Bible App continues to be one of our sponsors. And one of the ways that you can help us out as a podcast is go to dwellapp.io slash culture matters and check this out as a culture matters listener. They're doing a seven day free trial, but you can get 33% off their annual subscription, which works out to just $19.99. So 33% off their annual subscription, just $19.99 a year, and you can get the Dwell app, everything they do. So it's dwellapp.io slash culture matters. Head there right now. 
Well, Timothy, to kind of enter us back into this discussion, can you talk a little bit more about where it, this is honestly is one of the more common questions I'll get, especially for white people. They say, man, systemic racism or systemic examples or um, institutional examples, that's just um, almost like a myth. It's like it doesn't exist. And I, I hear you saying there's some uh, systematized versions of prejudice that are still pervasive that are a part of this, what we're talking about. Can you explain a little bit more what you think about that? Yeah, so... Um there is a book called The Color of Law um, that I read a couple of couple of summers ago. Um, that's a pro- that's a really really good resource to look at, and it will it it talks about a lot of the ins and outs of how um, laws can be um, racialized and how it can work to benefit um, one group of people over another. Uh, so, just one of the examples that. Um, you know, some people may have heard of, may, maybe maybe not, but is just this idea of creating ghettos. Um, and so you would actually redline a map and not allow any loans to be given out for that uh, specific area or pretty much not allow any economic growth in a specific area. And also, um, you know, there would be these covenants where um, you know, people in neighborhoods would agree to not allow um, certain people to move into their neighborhood or not allow a white person to sell a home to a black person because they wanted to keep that neighborhood white. And so then from there, you think about how much wealth can be garnered over generations just from owning a home or passing it down to the next generation. Um, and so then from there, you see the economic disparity. And then, you know, African Americans. You know, you look at the wealth gap between what African-Americans have today compared to what uh, white Americans have today. And it's it's immense. I don't have the exact number in front of me, but it's it's pretty scary to look at. Um, and there's I mean, there's uh, there's tons of other examples. Um, but, you know, a change in those laws can can help um, change some of those actions by some people who don't want some other people to live in their neighborhood. Um, so that was just one of the things that I, I learned, you know, just as we were building our house too, that like, you know, the guy who was selling us our house started mentioning, you know, about some of the people that were going to be moving in the neighborhood. And our realtor was like, Hey, that's dude, you're not supposed to talk about the race of people that are moving into this neighborhood because that is now illegal, um, which I'm very grateful for, um, which it, it shouldn't matter to us. Right. But, uh, for some people, it does. And um, but those, those are just a few of the ways. And that's a book that I would uh, highly rec- recommend that, to check out. If And that's really just one aspect. It's a really, really large book. Um, but that's just one little sliver of how um, racial disparities can be uh, systematized. Yeah, that's a great example. And that book is a, I've read that book. It's excellent excellent treatment on redlining and the practice of it and how it has long lasting ramifications. And for those who live local in Dallas, you can look at um, HOLC maps, they call them, 
uh, that would show where the the loans would be approved or not be approved and how they lined up with demographic maps of where people were allowed to live racially, whether they were uh, explicitly black, what they call black Mexican or open neighborhoods or white neighborhoods and how those things aligned. And yeah, th there are other things too. We could, talk, we could talk about criminal justice reform and talk about uh, laws in this country uh, that uh, lean one way or another. And we, there are all sorts of educational and church and neighborhood segregation examples that persist. And then the persistence of our separation increases the opportunity where you don't truly understand what another person is like or what they go through. And you make assumptions based on maybe what you've consumed through media or maybe just false assumptions about people through what you've seen. But knowing that like uh, prejudice is still something that impacts us today, knowing uh, seeing examples of it in the Ahmad Arbery case. Elizabeth, can you help us turn the corner a little bit to like, what can a Christian do in the midst of this? Or how should a Christian think? If somebody came to you, uh, you work uh, in a suburb that is uh, 90 something percent white population wise. I don't know what the, the church is, but if somebody were to come to you and say, Elizabeth, you're African-American. I live in this suburb, mostly white what can I do or how should I think about what's happening right now? First thing I would tell them um, is just to grieve. Uh, uh, someone lost their life. A mother doesn't have her son. Um, family, like there's someone isn't here anymore because of senseless violence. And so the first thing that we can do as Christians is just to mourn with those who mourn and to grieve and lament the loss of a person's future and the possibilities of what they could have been um, in a split second. I think to not necessarily to watch the video, um, but just to sit in the reality of what it meant for him to run down the street not knowing that was gonna be his last run. And the terror he must have experienced seeing that truck and seeing those guns and fighting for his life, he was human. Um, and so I think helping people sit in that before we ask a lot of questions, before we want to be critical, even before we want to say, hey, do you have a book list for me? And can I read, sit in the life that was lost? Um, and I think after that, it's, it's ability for us to know how it fits into the story of scripture. You know, I'm big on that. I talk about it all the time. And so the idea of the Imahu Day, um, which means that we're all made in the image of God and everyone, no matter who you are and where you're from and what you've done is deserving of inherent dignity and worth because we bear the image of our creator. And so what are ways in which that is not upheld in our world? And so for us to, even though you're in a suburb and you feel removed from what's happening in your city, there is brokenness that's happening in your suburb. And so for you to be intentional about educating yourself, about educating yourself about history, about educating yourself about what's going on in your city that you're in a suburb of, what's going on in your suburb. And so there's so much information that is available to people. And I would encourage someone to start soaking that up and to realize that for us to be on mission for the word, for us to share the gospel, um, for us to talk about a better king and a kingdom, is us to join the Lord on redeeming humanity. And we have to redeem what's broken. In order to redeem what's broken, we have to go to the broken places. And so um, to me, it's the humanity of it that we recognize, and then to realize you have power to make a change. We're not helpless no matter where you're at. Um, and that's a big part of the reason we see with the mod and what's happened isn't because people simply prayed. They took action and came together and they galvanized and really big things happened. Um, the really big things happened. And so I think that as a church, we just don't sit in a corner and huddle up in prayer meeting. We pray and then we go out. Um, 
So mourning the loss of his humanity and then seeing ways in which we can defend those who are in similar um, vulnerable places. Amen. That was excellent. Timothy, what are, what are things that you think, what would be a disappointing response from a church or from a church leader? What would you hope would not be happening or what, what do you hope they would not take from a moment like this? Um, I think just to ignore it. Um, you know, there's, and I, I think certain churches are in certain places as well. Um, I think some churches just may be more mature in these areas than, than others, but um, so for maybe the churches that are a little bit not not as mature in these areas, I think just the first step to at least acknowledge it, pray um, about it, pray for the situation, pray for understanding, pray for wisdom. Um, but um, I also think that some churches can get stuck there, and then that's the only thing they do: acknowledge it, pray pray about it, and there's nothing else that they do about it. Um, so I think as you move into maturity and as your heart is is convicted uh, about it collectively as a church, um, I think that it's it's trying to find ways to uh, not just include people of color in your church, uh, though that can help for perspective, um, but to actually go out and be the church in communities where, uh, like Andy Crouch says, like where you have to be use your power of influence, but yet be vulnerable at the same time um, to say, hey, I'm in a situation where I need you. Um, I don't know this area very well, things like that. And, and just actually try to go into those areas without trying to take over, um, but just going in and seeing ways that you can be like Jesus and serve. Um, so, it, it, you know, there's a lot of different ways that um, I think churches can respond. I don't think it's going to be perfect any one way, but there are concrete steps that I think every church can start begin taking. Um, I'm not a pastor to speak on that or anything, but I know, I know just from my experience, what, what's helped me. No, I think that is helpful. I've had uh, several of my friends who are uh, not white have told me that when something like this happens, when pastors do not say something on social media or do not say something in a sermon, that the silence on it is deafening and it feels like there's an intentional ignoring of what is actually happening. And I know uh, because I'm a lead pastor, I am able to control whether or not my church talks about things happening in the news on Sundays. And that may not be the case for a lot of people listening that they don't get to decide what is said, or they may be in churches that would not be happy if certain things were said on a Sunday. And so I think it's an important aspect of the encouragement we could give is to say, don't ignore it. Don't do nothing. Please don't just pretend everything is fine and it'll go away. These kind of, this, what we're talking about with racial injustice does not go away just the longer we ignore it. And it, it, it doesn't, like if we distract ourselves tonight by watching something instead of dealing with something, it doesn't actually help to ignore. And I do believe there's, there's an opportunity for us to say something and for it to be truly helpful. But as we, as we kind of come to a close and as we think about where do we go from here, uh, I know uh, one of the things, honestly, that was helpful to me, and this is very uncommon for me as a pastor, most, most seasons I am only able to attend my church because churches meet on Sunday mornings. But in the season in the midst of quarantine, churches are posting their worship services. I've been able to, quote unquote, attend other churches. So even this morning, I started with uh, going to a predominantly African-American church's uh, worship service from this weekend. 
and seeing what did they have to say? How did they grieve? How are they processing? And that was a huge blessing to me who's going, I wouldn't be able to be at that church. It's not even in my city, let alone uh, attend it because it happens uh, the simultaneously with when my church is worshiping. So it was an opportunity for me to try to listen, try to empathize and try to learn. But as we conclude today, what, what kind of encouragement would you give people as you give your final thoughts? Um, here's how we can do something. Here's something you can pray for or go out and be active in. Elizabeth, can you kick us off with your final thoughts? I think the hope is that as long as, even though it feels like it's moving really slow, change is happening. Um, I've seen a different response to this video than I've seen before. Um, Because this isn't the first time we've seen a video. Um, And so that the way in which Christians of all ethnicities have spoken out and spoken really loudly to me, even just in my time um, navigating this issue, tells me that the winds of change are blowing, um, even though it might feel really small. And so I think that our hope is not in people, our hope is not in government, our hope is in Jesus and the Holy Spirit is moving and doing work. Within that, I think there's opportunity for us as Christians to be civically responsible because there's some people who were a part of the reason why this case did not move who are elected officials. And so your vote at the polling booth matters. And to know who you're electing, to know Um, what they stand for and what they don't stand for. And so you have an opportunity. Many times it's not necessarily what's happening in the White House that affects us as much as what's happening in our own communities, um, in our own county, our own state. And so for us to be knowledgeable about that, because you can put someone in office who can help or someone in office who can be harmful to a community of people. Um, And so we have an opportunity to use our voice at the polling booths, voting matters. And for us as Christians to be engaged in that, it's not easy. It's complicated. There is no easy left or right for us to go into necessarily, but we can do our best um, with the power of the Holy Spirit to um, be able to push forward the kingdom of God by helping for people in office who will push forward those things for us. Yeah, and absolutely. I mean, I was going to probably say the same exact thing, but I think about a book that I just finished listening to by uh, Malcolm Gladwell called Talking to Strangers. A uh, really good book to listen to, but um, he in in that book he talks about coupling this idea that um, behaviors are linked to very specific um, circumstances and conditions. And so, for us as believers, we can think about what the specific circumstances are, and also think about the specific conditions um, are in terms of uh, you know who we're voting for, what we're vo- what we're voting for, um, and how that's going to affect our our neighbors. Uh, so in this case, like, you know, it may be a good, it, maybe it's just time for us to reanalyze some of these things. Like I, I do, I do see the, perhaps the goodness in being able to make a citizen's arrest. But when you think by and large, who that's going to affect and who that's, who that's going to benefit or who that's maybe not going to benefit, um, maybe it's time for us to think about those things. Uh, you know, I'm, I don't really, like like you said, Elizabeth, we don't really have a left or a right, but um, just to think about these, like how does perhaps maybe open carry uh, give, um, you know, a circumstance like that? How might that heighten the circumstance in that condition where you, if you have your gun out ready and aimed at somebody uh, to make a citizen's arrest, what might be the outcome of that? And so, um, you know, and, and in that book, Gladwell talks about all these other different circumstances as well that 
you know, where, for instance, in this British town, you know, a lot of people were committing suicide just by using the town gas. They'd stick their head in the oven and it was easy. It was odorless, but the carbon monoxide uh, would kill them. Uh, but it, they decided that they would they would change um, from using that town gas to using a natural gas. And it was a hard process. It was difficult. It was long. Uh, they had to go and change a bunch of stuff. But as a result, in the long run, uh, suicides decrease uh, by a lot. Um, and so, um, yeah, th- some of these things are difficult and it's hard and, and um, it's going to take some time for us to work through. Um, but what's it going to be? What's going to be the benefit of it uh, uh, in the end? You know, it's going to cost us something. Everything's going to cost us something. Um, but is it worth it in the end? That's excellent. I think one of the things you said too, that, you know, can be really helpful is you think about the, the empathy that comes from, uh, reworking a situation through your mind. Um, I think about it, it was at a time to kill. I think it's a movie where they kind of reverse the races to try to help them understand in a court case. And if, for me, if I think about, okay, if there's a situation like this, what if it was a white man and it was two uh, black men with guns who felt like it was okay to carry and stop a guy. Cause he looked like a guy and they, they shot him. And, and how would our nation react differently? How would I respond differently? And if there are differences, then that again reveals prejudice that reveals like, Oh, it's because of which position the people of which race were in these things happen. And I think it's always important. Secondly, whenever we talk about this situation to remember that racism and prejudice is sin. And so for churches to treat it like sin, which means to call people to confess to it, to call it out the same way a pastor would call out greed or lust or anger or anything else people struggle with to talk about. This is something common to mankind, not somewhere out there. Racism is not always uh, somebody hates you because of what color your skin is. Racism is a version of prejudice that, uh, that rests in almost every human heart outside of Jesus Christ. And so we all have assumptions that we make about other people that are not fair to them. And to, to different degrees, those things need to be confessed, brought before the Lord, repented of, and even in my own heart to say, Lord, forgive me. I have made a snap judgment about somebody because of what they look like. And to confess that to my accountability partner, to my wife, which honestly I've done on a regular basis. I will tell my wife, there was a, a man who looked like this. Even here's vulnerability for you. This last week, I was building a patio in front of my house. And I know we're, we're concluding the episode, but I, the Lord just put this on my heart. There was an African-American man who walked up to me while I was building my patio. He's wearing a big white t-shirt and jean shorts. I did not recognize him. And in my neighborhood, it is not uncommon to be asked for money. And I assumed he was coming to ask me for money. And he was asking me about the patio and I was telling him about the patio. And then he reintroduced himself. We had met before. I had barbecued with him and his kids a couple of years ago and I had forgotten him. And in my own heart, walked it back within my house after reconnecting with this man and told my wife, Man, my heart just hurts. I just, I made snap judgments about this man and what he wanted because of assumptions I made about him because of, uh, maybe not necessarily because of his race, but just assuming this is what this man wants right now. And this is, he looks like he's going to ask me for something. He's probably going to need something. Instead of, here's a neighbor who wants to connect, who's a friendly face. I made assumptions. And I know that these things happen to me on the daily. And I know it's true for everybody in my congregation, for people in our city. And I want churches to address racism and prejudice as sin. 
and to see it put to death. And so I hope that episodes like this continue a conversation. We certainly don't conclude or solve things in this, but I want to see change and I want to see um, our nation change. I want to see our hearts change and I want to see our churches change. And I don't want to be part of a, a church that uh, commodifies diversity, but I, I want to be one that values it. And I don't want to be one that, um, that gives uh, empty backing, just lip service to what's going on in the nation, but I want to talk about it legitimately and sincerely. And so Elizabeth and Timothy, thank you for sharing a little bit about how this has gone for you. I know it's been emotionally difficult. And I know that like Elizabeth said, you don't personally represent every black person in America as you're talking through this, but your perspectives, unique as they may be, are incredibly helpful to me and to our listeners. So thank you for giving us your perspective and your time. Thank you for listening to Culture Matters. Today's episode was recorded and mixed by Chris Starrett and produced by David Rohr. If you like what you heard, will you please give us a great review wherever you listen to the podcast? You can follow us on Instagram and support our patron page at patron.podbean.com slash culture matters. Thank you all. God bless.